If uh, you haven't already, would you go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 15. Be concluding Mark's Gospel this morning. Having begun sometime in last August. Be focusing in on Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 40, and we'll read through 16. Mark 15, beginning in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that... He should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told all those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard it, that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared and another formed to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him afar, saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. 
They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Having heard God's word, would you join with me as we pray and we ask that he would help us as we hear it expounded. God and Father, we look to you this morning, coming in faith based on the certainty of your promise and the provision of your own Son. Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our perfect mediator. Because in your good pleasure and your eternal purpose, you chose and ordained him to be our true and greater prophet, our great high priest, our victorious king. And we rejoice to hear that he is the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and the judge of the world. And it is by this Jesus, risen from the dead, triumphant over sin and reigning in victory, that we look to you. We confess our great need for you, for your mercy, for your spirit's ministry and power here among us. So Lord, help us as we hear your word, that we might receive it with hearts of meekness and that you might accomplish your good purposes in our lives. For Christ's sake, amen. In recent months, you may have heard others talk or write about the prospects of Christians living in the so-called negative world. By this, authors are writing, they're speaking comparatively about the shifting cultural approval of being associated with Christianity. There have been times in decades past where belonging to a church or being associated with Christianity was a positive opinion. They've observed that over time this association more or less lost some equity and being associated with Christianity was essentially a neutral position. But as cultural values shift and public opinion reevaluates, being a Christian eventually becomes a negative association. And in many ways, this sort of negative world, as it's been described, it's not really a new thing. It only seems new when we limit our scope to the past 200 years, 100 years, or 50 years of American experience. But if we would widen out the lens just a little bit, and survey the broader landscape of history, what we'll find is that being associated with Jesus and actually following after him has often been a rather negative experience and actually very costly to do so. Yes, many have attempted to commandeer Jesus for political favor, to build social status, or even inflate an ego, but biblical discipleship has always come with a cost. And as we read through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been very careful to expose his followers to the ultimate purpose of why he came and the actual cost of what it means to follow after him. Jesus is most certainly not looking to just amass a crowd of followers. He is looking to call disciples. Do you remember Mark 8? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever 
would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with all of his angels. Or how about the explicit teaching that Jesus gives to the twelve as he's on his way up to Jerusalem in Mark 10. Mark tells us, again, taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them what was happening to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, Jesus will rise. This is the recruitment poster for following Christ. He makes no apologies. And as we read of the death, and the resurrection of Christ in this same gospel, note that Mark is not so focused on the evidence for the resurrection, nor the the mere facts of the resurrection. He's quite sparse in his language describing both. The emphasis of Mark is more to do with the implications of the resurrection. What does it mean to follow Jesus in light of his death and his resurrection? That is more the emphasis of Mark's narrative. Equally as important, what does it mean for you and I? As the reader, we are meant to ask that question. This is what it meant for these women, for these men. What does it mean for you this morning as you hear of this Jesus that he was dead, but now has risen, and he calls his people to follow after him. What does it mean to follow Christ in light of his death and his resurrection? Well, notice the way that Mark gets at the answer to this, through his concern, by the actual structure of the narrative. Arranging, as he often does, with this sandwich technique, for lack of better terms. Meaning, what Mark does, as he does in numerous places in the gospel, is he takes two events that are of similar emphasis or direction, and then interrupts them with a contrasting event. Notice how this actually plays out in the end of 15 and into 16. In this instance, this account of the man, Joseph of Arimathea, is wedged between these two accounts of these women, Mary, Mary, and Salome. Look back at verse 40. We're told that these women are following Jesus, looking from a distance at the scene of the crucifixion. Skip down to 47. These same women are at the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. But in between those two descriptions, we're told of one named Joseph, who asks for the body of Jesus and then buries him in a tomb. Now, Mark, as he does elsewhere, takes the order and the arrangement of these accounts not to just be artistic in the way of telling a story, but to be intentional and the point that he's making. The two stories on the outside lie in contrast to the account in the middle, and they are informed by one another. He's arranging it this way for a purpose. Each group is said to be followers of Jesus. Each group is associated with Jesus, and they must work through what it means to follow Jesus in light of his death and resurrection. 
The same must be true for us. If we would follow after Jesus, we too must consider what it means to be associated with him in his death and his resurrection. Let's look at how Mark unfolds this for us. Look back at verse 40, where we're told about these women who are following, but hesitantly. Following hesitantly. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The also, in verse 40, is intended to be the link to 39. Meaning that, in addition to the Roman centurion who stood before and saw this crucified Jesus, there were also these women looking on from a distance. And beyond the names of the women here, we're told that when Jesus was in Galilee, up north, that these women often served and ministered to him as they followed him. Meaning, here in Jerusalem, as they're looking on, they're not some sort of rubbernecking crowd trying to peer over and see what is happening at the spectacle of the cross. They are a band of faithful followers. They are described as doing the very same things that Jesus described as what it means to be a follower of his, meaning to follow after him and to serve him. That's what Mark tells us they've been doing and they're continuing to do here in Jerusalem. Now, it's true they're following from a distance. Mark says that. There are no rush to be at the foot of the cross or out in the open. But their hesitancy and their timidity should not be understood as unique to them. Mark is not putting a spotlight on these women and saying, look at them following from a distance. Actually, if you read it in context, you'll find this is pretty much the deal of the day. Luke clarifies in his account in chapter 23 that all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, the cross, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed after him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. All his acquaintances stood at a distance. Prophetically, Psalm 38, 11, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Christ could most certainly say that from the cross. I say this to protect us, to guard us from reading this account of their timidity and cautious spirit in an overly critical light. Remember what Mark's already recorded. Judas is betrayed. Peter has denied three times. And in verse 50 of chapter 14, flat out all of them just fled and left Jesus there in the garden. Jesus has already been arrested under the cover of darkness, falsely accused, condemned by Pilate, mercilessly whipped, beaten, mocked, and crucified. To be associated with Jesus in this moment would put a little bit of timidity in all of our step. Let's be honest. Perhaps you can see such a cautious following even in your own pursuit today. How you're following Jesus Mindful of the cost within your workplace. Mindful of the cost among fellow students. 
mindful of the cost even in your own home. Maybe for your life there's a bit of fear, even remorse, over the opportunity to share Christ that you just flat passed over. You chickened out and you know it. Or how about the embarrassment that you feel in reading your Bible in public or praying before a meal? Friend, look at the scriptures and see that there are many cautious, timid followers. But more importantly, most importantly, note what the scriptures say about Christ in relationship to this sort of weakness. Maybe not what you would expect. Jesus is not ashamed of the weak and the cautious. Listen to this description of Jesus given to us from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42.3 A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Christian, our Jesus is full of mercy. He's full of compassion. The smallest spark of grace in your life is precious to him. Do you know that? Even on the days when you feel like more smoke than spark, or you feel more bruised than bold, Christ adores that. He adores you. He is full of compassion. Listen to Puritan Richard Sibbs. Christ will not quench the smoking flax. This is true for two principal reasons. First, because this spark is from heaven. It's his own. It's kindled by his own spirit. And secondly, it tends to the glory of his powerful grace in his children that preserves light in the midst of darkness. A spark in the midst of swelling waters of corruption. Men, for just a little smoke, will quench the light. Christ, we see, ever cherishes even the least beginnings. How he bore with the many imperfections of his poor disciples. If he did sharply check them, it was in love, and that they might shine the brighter. Can we have a better pattern to follow this from him by whom we hope to be saved? Christian, what I'm telling you is that if you are following hesitantly this morning, a bit of timidity in your own step, the word of God would exhort you, it would comfort you by saying, keep going. Even if you feel this morning that you're looking on from a distance, trying to keep up, Christ loves his followers. And he promises to be faithful to us even in our weakness Even in our fear, he will show himself strong on our behalf. There are those that are following hesitantly. But then we meet this man named Joseph. We'd have to say that he's one who's following courageously. Look back at verse 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen shroud. And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. 
And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So the scene now shifts to Friday evening. And this man, Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know much about this man or really even the region in which he's from. Only what the Gospels tell us. And there's a couple of things here. We're told that he's a respected member of the council. He's a member of the elite Jewish religious authority known as the Sanhedrin. He's a member of the religious authority that condemned Jesus to be crucified. Though being a member, Luke writes that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. Though a member, he dissented from the majority opinion. While the Sanhedrin moved to condemn and crucify, this man Joseph could not, would not. Russell told that he was looking for the kingdom of God. He's a man of faith. He's a man who's heard the promise of God's word. He's looking and waiting and saying, your kingdom come, your will be done, in essence. And we're told also that he's a man of courage. But I love the way Mark puts it. He took courage. Do you know the difference? Sometimes we think of courage just innately dwells within somebody and we're in awe. And yet Mark gives us a little glimpse here. He took courage. That would lead me to believe there's some bit of hesitancy, some wavering, considering the options, and yet he took courage. And what did he do? Well, he evaluated the cost. He considered his reputation among the Sanhedrin. He looked at the body of Christ on the cross And he took courage. In many ways, Joseph's inclusion here, wedged between these two encounters of the women, distinguish him as really a model disciple. While Peter and the other disciples, they fled, the others are lurking along timidly, Joseph, we're told, in the middle of all that, he takes courage. Joseph goes to Pilate. Think about this. The very one who hours before said, scourge him and crucify him. Joseph goes to this man. Joseph goes to the cross and literally associates himself with Jesus by unnailing him from the cross, wrapping him in a linen shroud, and then taking him to a grave that he owned, placing him in the tomb. You don't get any more associated with Jesus in his crucifixion than that. What we learn from Joseph is that following Jesus may prove costly and will require courage. Sometimes being associated with Jesus will threaten your reputation. Sometimes being associated with Jesus will mean that you will lose the respect that you hold in the eyes of others. Do you remember Jesus' words in Luke 6? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. We love when people speak well of us. But Christ has some sobering words. Not that you want to be hated by all, but you should be concerned if you're loved by all. James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? How many college students have discovered this in History 101? You thought you were just taking a benign little history class and found out you're the enemy. Or about your introduction to anthropology. You may stand out a bit there. You may be of the dissenting opinion. 
How about conversations with other parents at the park or at their ball game that would out you, that might be threatening to your reputation? Being associated with Jesus in the realm of politics, business, neighborhood block parties, these are all avenues in which it can threaten our reputation and others' opinions of us and who we are in our association with Jesus. But the constant call of Scripture, it's not really to just garner the respect of others and pad your reputation with positive influencers. It's a call to courage. And courage is required if we will take up our cross and follow him. Paul would write Timothy as Paul is literally writing his last words in this baton pass to Timothy, the young pastor. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Timothy, do not be ashamed, but share. Share in the sufferings of our Lord. He would say just a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Why? To share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The call of Christianity is a call to fellowship with Christ. It's to enjoy Him and to be united with Him. And in sharing in Christ, that means it must also include sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Therefore, the need of the hour is most definitely for courage. At some point, the respect that you hold and the opinion of others will be directly challenged by your association with Jesus. And this Joseph of Arimathea stands as our model, as our encouragement, and that he took courage. What I find interesting is that the concern over what should he do was eventually overtaken by what he could do. The unique position that this man stood, the unique opportunities that he had that others didn't. Given that he was a respected member of the council, he could get access to Pilate and ask for the body Well, many others could not. Given that he was a rather wealthy man, he could purchase the linen required and the tomb that he was laid in. His privileges were leveraged for the honor of Christ. Do you see that? Friend, what privileges has God given you? Have you ever thought about that? What privileges are unique to you that you may have that others may not have? Maybe this season of life that others don't have in this season. This financial status, this freedom of time, this wealth of knowledge, this flexibility with the schedule. What opportunities has Christ given to you to leverage for his glory? And what might it mean to take courage in those opportunities? Joseph did what others could not simply because of what God had given him. Friend, following Jesus will most often prove costly and require courage. There's a third section here. We return to these women and we see that they were 
actually following quite fearfully. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. 16.1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The scene now returns to these women. From their position of watching, they note the particular tomb in which Jesus was laid. The stone was rolled. They mark it out. They go to buy spices. Very early the next morning, they go to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. These women are still seeking to minister to Jesus, just as they had done in Galilee. They honored him in life. They're seeking to honor him in his death. And it was this decision to go to the tomb to anoint his body that sets up the whole encounter with the angel, the empty tomb, the announcement of the resurrection. But as we read through this section, we've also got to deal with some of the textual notes regarding the longer ending of verses 9 through 20. Perhaps your Bible calls out that the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Now, friend, this should not be of any alarm to us, but we need to say something in in passing while we're here. As a church, we joyfully and confidently confess that the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, infallible standard for saving knowledge and faith and obedience. We stand upon the infallibility and the certainty of God's word. But we also recognize that the scriptures were not written in English. If that's news to you, I'm glad I could serve you this morning. (laughs) We often think the world revolves around America, but it was not written in English. But our translations are faithful and reliable translations gathered from various manuscripts from 130-ish A.D. all the way up to 1200 A.D. And of these copies, of these manuscripts, more than 5,000 exist. And they range in size from little scraps, no larger than a postage stamp, to complete manuscripts of, of our Bible. And by overwhelming majority in the multitude of these examples, these copies, these manuscripts, they show remarkable agreement among themselves. It's impossible on historical standards to compare textual documents and find the breadth of copies that we do have. And the unified message and cohesion of these copies, not only numerically abundant, but spread over thousands of years. They're very Few exceptions. And Mark is one example. 
The two oldest and probably most important manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Several church fathers, such as Clement of Alexandria, Origen, show no awareness of this longer ending. Uh, Eusebius, Jerome, more church historians, attest that verses 9 through 20 were not present in the earliest Greek manuscripts. So because of this and a couple of other examples, there's good reason to conclude the Gospel of Mark at chapter 16, verse 8, and that the remaining text is essentially a scribal addition or a summary that's put in a footnote that just kind of got attached to what's there. But in saying all this, friends, I want you to understand that the Bible that you hold in your hand is an amazing gift of God, not only in its substance, but in its accuracy, its trustworthiness, and its uniformity to the original text. No other ancient book, copy, writing, journal, diary comes even close to the wealth of preservation that we have in our English Bibles. Only a small part of the text is in question, and the majority of those variants have very little to do with understanding the meaning of the text. It's very important for us to acknowledge that and affirm that. Nevertheless, we recognize that verses 9 through 20 are most likely a scribal edition or a footnote. Then what do we do with verse 8? That's one hurdle. Here's the second one. Did you notice verse 8? They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end? I think much of the reservation in hearing that Mark's gospel would end at verse 8 is that it has to do with the abruptness of what's here. The women leaving in great fear, not saying anything to anyone? Happy Easter? Well, the ending of verse 8 is abrupt. But I would argue it's not a bug, it's a feature. And by that I mean, it's actually right in line with Mark's approach. If you've been reading the Gospel of Mark, what he does here is very Markan. It's right in line with how he's been unpacking and telling the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For one, we know the women eventually did go out and tell everyone. Uh, Luke records in verse 8 of 24, they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all the things to the eleven and the rest. So it wasn't an eternal silence. Most likely those moments where you see something and you are dumbfounded and you don't say anything to anyone until you gather your thoughts of saying, what did we just see? Secondly, their response of trembling and astonishment and fear to the news of this resurrected Jesus, it's not unique. It's not unheard of. In fact, Mark has been faithful to record this response of fear and astonishment throughout the entirety of the gospel. This isn't the first time this shows up. Whenever people encounter the power, the authority, and the mystery of Christ as the Son of God in Mark's gospel, More often than not, they are afraid. Let me just remind you. The disciples were awestruck when confronted with Jesus' overwhelming ability to calm the seas. Mark 4.41. The people of the town of the Gerasenes feared Jesus' power to drive out a legion of demons and to restore a man to his right mind. Mark 5.15. 
A woman feared in response to having her flow of blood flow stopped simply by touching his garments in Mark 5.33. The disciples, were told, were filled with fear when they saw Jesus walking on the water, Mark 6.50. Peter was terrified upon seeing Jesus transfigured upon the mountain in Mark 9, verse 6. The disciples were amazed and afraid as they followed Jesus into Jerusalem, anticipating the cross, Mark 10, 32. What Mark is saying is that humans have been absolutely dumbfounded and completely ignorant of God's glory throughout the entirety of the gospel and respond in astonishment and fear more often than not. Who is this? So why should we not expect the same reaction when these women are met with the most powerful divine act of all? He's not here. He's risen. What do you do with that? And Mark loves to use irony. Do you like irony? You should. God likes irony. He loves to show... Mark does, loves to show how God accomplishes his purposes despite the failings of people. How God accomplishes his purposes through evil actions of his enemies. How God accomplishes his purpose even when his people do opposite of what he commands, that God is not thwarted. His ways are not overthrown. And so it should not surprise us that irony gets the last word in Mark's narrative. Do you remember the healing of the leper? It goes back to Mark chapter 1. Jesus heals this man of his leprosy. Gives us some instructions right after that. See that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing, what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer enter a town. And yet... The gospel still goes forth. Christ's purposes on earth still march ahead. This man did what he was told not to do. Twist of irony. Go, tell his disciples, Mark 16, and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled for the tomb, for trembling and astonishment has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The irony is the bookend of Mark. The leper said something to everyone when he should not have, and the woman said nothing to anyone when they should have. And yet, even when God's people are weak and afraid and timid, following in fear and even silence, the good news of the gospel still goes forth. God's purposes, they're not overthrown. And friends, today we celebrate the tomb that is empty. It's not the empty tomb that proves the resurrection. It's actually the resurrection that fills this empty tomb with meaning. The fact that he is not there isn't good news. The fact that he is not here because he is risen is the best news. So in a similar way, it's not your faithfulness. It's not your fearlessness that proves the worth of Christ to the watching world. But the worth of Christ enables and motivates your fearlessness and your faithfulness amidst fear. He has risen. He is not here. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before you to Galilee. 
this little statement right here is actually a hyperlink back to Mark 14, 28, when Jesus said the exact same thing. Guys, this is what's going to happen. But I'm going to go before you to Galilee. It's an announcement filled with grace, filled with encouragement, because of the abandonment of the disciples, the denial of Peter, but the tomb, all of that will not be the final word on the matter. The last words belong to Jesus, and he says, I go before my people. In the words of Hebrews, he's the faithful pioneer. He's the trailblazer. He's the founder of our salvation that is bringing many sons to glory. Friends, if this is true for Peter, it remains true for his followers today. Do you know that you could sit here this morning and be filled with fear and shame and regret and failure and profess to follow Christ? And yet, Jesus promises that he goes before his people. Even for followers of Christ, our sin will not have the final word. Because he has gone ahead of us to the cross, to the grave, and he's gone before us into the resurrection. He has made provision for sinners, and any and all who would look to him in faith, put their trust in him for his sacrificial death upon the cross, can know what it is to be forgiven and reconciled to him. What I'm saying is that following Jesus does not mean fearless perfection. It means humble repentance. You too can experience the the joy of sins forgiven, the hope of new life by turning from your sin and insisting upon your own way and to Christ, recognizing the goodness of his own way and his death for sin. That Jesus is the sufficient payment to pay for your failure, to pay for your guilt, and to pay for your sin. It's true that following Jesus in America has often been easy and at times even an advantageous decision. Being associated with Christ and his church has often meant stability, respect, some sense of normalcy. But friends, this is increasingly becoming less common. This is not news to any of us. Now, in saying this, I'm not intending to be doom and gloom or anti-American. I am intending to be an observer of history beyond the last 50, 75, 200, 500 years. Noting that how in history, Christianity is more often than not been at odds with public opinion and cultural preferences. One poet observed, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but you go on and on. What this means is that the dollar, at some point, will not be the global reserve currency of the world. Look into your history books. What this means is that the Washington Monument will one day look like the Temple of Apollo in Corinth. And people will ask, who were these people? What does this big stick mean? And somebody will have to ask a tour guide and say, well, let me tell you. Read your history books. That would not be surprising at all. But one thing is for certain in all of this. The Church of Christ Invincible. Christianity was made to thrive in a world of opposition. 
What did Christ tell his disciples? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, many of these original readers of Mark's gospel, remember, reading this, hearing this under a certain man named Caesar Nero, had cause for concern. Many had fears and struggles. And what we see when we read God's word, that the fears and the struggles that we experience on a day-to-day basis, they're not new. Not only are they not new, they are wonderfully supplied for and accounted for in the faithfulness of Christ. The call of Scripture remains ever relevant. In the face of such challenges, we are called to keep our eyes on Jesus because he's the Son of Man and the Son of God. What has Mark told us? He's been tempted and tried, but found blameless. He's come in authority, rebuking evil spirits, calming wind and waves, stilling the storms, and having the authority to say, Son, your sins are forgiven. When agonizing in the garden, he faithfully endures, praying, Heavenly Father, not what I want, but what you want. And when accused of of blasphemy before religious authorities and abandoned by his disciples, he remains faithful to the point of death, even the death of the cross, confident in his Heavenly Father. Friends, we are not so different from the followers of Christ in ages past. And just as we sung a couple of hymns this morning, several hundred years old, we read a copy of God's Word that spans several thousand years. And in all of its testimony, it says one overarching thing. God is faithful, and He is merciful, and He's shown His faithfulness and His mercy in His Son. Christian, we follow a suffering Christ who's been rejected by the world, anointed by God to be the perfect mediator between God and man. And so what that means is that we preserve by walking in faith, trusting that God will vindicate all his followers just as he did with his son. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We look to Christ. Would you pray with me and ask that God would do that in our lives? Father, we thank you for the testimony of your word that has proven true through all these many centuries, Lord, that we build our lives upon and rest upon and take great comfort in. Lord, what a tremendous privilege to be called by you and to follow after you, but Lord, we are thankful that you are completely honest in what the following after requires, and we're even more confident and more grateful that you promise to be faithful to us You promise to supply and keep us. You promise to give grace even when we are weary and weak. So, Father, fix our eyes on your Son. Keep us from being overly fixated upon all that swirls around us. Lord, we pray that the good news of Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, would be the thing that ultimately shapes our character, forges our courage, builds our compassion, and, Lord, causes us to go out into this world and proclaim the goodness of God of God in the face of Christ. Lord, thank you for days like this that we set aside to exalt the resurrected Christ. 
Lord, we pray that you would form us more into the image of your Son, that as we seek to follow him, we would be found shaped by not only the cross, but shaped by the reality of the resurrection. Shape our following, shape our witness, our testimony, by the reality of this one, your Son, Jesus Christ the righteous. Continue to glorify your name through us and through your church, we pray. Amen.